Brian, Penny, welcome to the Development by David podcast. This is a real, 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 real privilege. How are you today? I'm doing great, Dave. I'm starting to, I've, I've carved out a bit of white space for myself this month after a, a bloody long few years grafting, doing hustling, doing lots of work. So I'm in, I'm in a very good space at the moment. Things are settling down for the summer. And uh, I'm, it's a privilege to be on this podcast. It, just the snippets of what I've heard about yourself and just chatting to you for a few minutes before the podcast. I feel I feel quite honoured sitting here now. Really looking forward to this. Oh, me, I'm absolutely honoured to have you. And if anyone deserves some downtime, is you from the initiatives that you've been running over the last few years, the projects you've been managing and the things that you've been working on, no one deserves that space more than you. So for the listeners who aren't familiar with you yet, who is Brian Penny today in 2022? Who is Brian Penny in 2022? Wow, it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I often feel it's very hard to say who you are. It's it's nearly easier to say what you're not. <laughs> and I really like, is the, is the ego answering this question? Is something else answering this question? It's an interesting one. So quick one, I suppose, quick summary. So I was what I was. What I, what I was and what I am not now is an anxious heroin addict who just reacts to trauma and the world that he lives in. That's what I was for 30, the first 35 years of my life as an adult chronically addicted to heroin for 15 years and I was just I looked like an anxious addict I felt like an anxious addict and I thought like an anxious addict and that's how I defined myself let's say the conceptual sense of self the ego was the the addict that protected my addiction at all costs and I was very I'm forever grateful I'm so I feel very I don't know just so grateful that I had a shift in perspective somehow. I got lucky in 2013 and I started looking at the world through a different lens. I found another addiction, you could call it a passion or an obsession in learning and personal development and health, the opposite of everything that I've done in addiction. And I've been on quite a, a, a crazy journey the last nine years, coming up to nine years now. I've I done a, a degree in psychology, a master's. I got my PhD last year. Um, I lecture in neuroscience. I'm interested in the neuroscience of the brain, of addiction and stuff like that. Wrote a book and built a business. So uh, you could call it a very passionate, semi-addicted person with positive addictions. That's who I am today. But uh, happy, happy and loving life. And it's all about looking after the foundations of your mental and emotional health. And that's really what I'm all about. And sharing it with other people, which are the program that I've developed for me, help, for myself and now share with other people. I think the listeners will be so enticed already and they'll resonate when I say this. Like, I believe that the journey that you've been on and that you've just displayed there is the embodiment of development. You've not only developed the person, the persona that the world sees, which is a canvas of your charisma that everyone's already experienced, your values, your education, um, your demeanor, but also you've developed neurologically, like from all the posts that I've seen online. And my podcast usually walks through the life of a guest, and yours is incredible. Um, you've even brought it to life there. But you speak about a kind of pivotal point in 2013 where your life changed. Before we touch on that, can we speak about what life was really like um, as, as a young man in Ireland? Yeah, definitely. And <clears throat> I came, I think it's important to note that I came from a very loving family. It really, I was really a good family. I was looked after and stuff like that. But there was a lot of trauma in, in, in my family as well. There was alcoholism and stuff like that. So I always felt loved, but there was a lot of alcoholism as well. So I always felt scared as well. And I, I came in, I came into the world with, with a condition known as intestinal malrotation, which basically means that my guts were twisted. And I nearly died as an infant. I nearly died. I had um, I was misdiagnosed. I lost half my body weight. I was only a couple of weeks old, rushed into hospital. And what many people don't know, like my trauma started at a very early age. I actually had an operation as an infant without a general anesthetic. It's crazy. It's, it was only in 1985 that the medical practice realized that infants experience pain like normal adults. It was a, a practice based on evidence from the 1940s. And it was just a crazy thing. And it was there was an outcry when they realized that in 85. But I had this operation in 1978, <clears throat> excuse me, without a general anesthetic. I had complications for the next year of my life from the surgery and no pain meds because they didn't believe those circuits were were embedded we we now know that the fetus experiences pain and although we can't remember it, it was based on mem memory evidence it was crazy but um yeah I, so i was basically traumatized for the first year of my life and i i i sort of set the tone for me to be highly anxious highly agitated and i just 
I just have memories of being of worrying all the time. I worried about the death of my family. I worried about what was going to happen. I was always scanning the 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 world for danger because that's how I was trained as an organism. And I was just a, a worried, scared little kid that uh, was looking for a way out. That's that's I think that's the early part of my life, anyway. How do you think that transpired into addiction? Then is addiction used as a blanket? to minimize anxiety and to almost vault it away by some sort of external um, distraction, whether that's substance or phone or porn or something like that. Yeah, 100%. Like addiction is just a symptom of an underlying problem. That's, that's literally all it is. So for me, and you find so many people with addiction issues had, had trauma, some kind of trauma in their lives, some kind of relative trauma. It doesn't have to be this big, huge trauma, but it's some kind of trauma in their lives. And it's it's a form of escape. Like we talk about, oh, I'm going to get out of my head. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get out of your head and get out of your body because you can't live there because it's so bloody painful. So no wonder people talk about getting out of your head. It's a cliche in terms of drug use, but that's what we do. And for me, I, I had an anxiety issue, which I medicated with heroin. I often say, like, I didn't have my general anesthetic uh, as an infant, but I found it at the age of 17 in the form of heroin, and I didn't let go for 18 years. So I was looking for that general anesthetic. I was always agitated. I was always worried. There was some good times within that as well. Like, there was family holidays. There was good times. I, like, there was I played football. I went to school. But there was this underlying anxiety and tension that was always there. And I started dabbling in drugs like hash, tablets, alcohol at an early age, 13, 14, and it relieved those symptoms. It helped me to escape that momentarily. But I done heroin for the first time at 17, and I describe it in my book like it was like a soft, warm blanket that just wrapped around my soul and says, keep me close, I will protect you. It was like a voice speaking to me. And I listened to that voice and uh, it was game over for me. The moment I done heroin for the first time, it was so soothing and calming to my previous self that I was I was in trouble from day one. How did that manifest for the next, was it 17 years? 18, 18, 18 years. years. I often say I was chronically addicted for, um, chronically addicted for 15 years. So I was, I was doing, I was good, I was good enough in school. I, I had plans for the future. I didn't see myself as in inverted commas as a heroin addict, and I always thought I was going places. So I kind of used for the first three years, I used heroin and and other drugs, but I used heroin sort of once a week. But I'd always be craving it. I'd be wishing for the following Friday. Me and my best mate, we used to say, um, what you call it, we used to have heroin Fridays. And we'd be just looking forward to the Friday. And the interesting thing is, David, that when the first time we'd done heroin, six of us done it. But it was only myself and my best mate who got chronically addicted to it and started using it every day over time. And we were the ones struggling emotionally. We were the ones that had struggles with our mental health, where the other ones were, were, weren't, weren't as bad as us emotionally. So they didn't need it as that crutch. So it kind of just, uh, we used it once a week and then it started over time, it started creeping into twice a week. And we seen ourselves as going out, party animals, having a laugh, teenagers going into our early 20s. So we didn't want to be, we didn't think of ourselves as addicts, but slowly but surely, it, like it had us, it had me from the very first moment, I can only talk to myself. But it was like it just put a little, uh, a, a, the, the noose around my neck. And as time went by, it was pulling tighter and tighter and tighter. And anxiety, anxiety was getting worse through drug use, through, through drink use. And I started having panic attacks then at the age of 20. And when I had my first panic attack, um, I, I'll never forget it. I thought it was like death. I thought it was dying. I didn't think it was a panic attack. We hadn't even got that terminology back then. But my baseline level after the panic attack, my baseline level of anxiety was just so much higher. And I remember going to the doctor and he gave me a uh, benzodiazepine, like Valium and, and, and Anxicami for the first week. And I says, wow, this is a potential solution. This works. And I went back to him after a week and I was mixing with heroin. I was really, the heroin had to be sucked in. I was doing it two, three times a week at this stage. And I knew that helped anxiety. Um, and then when I went back to the doctor, my GP, and I says, can I get more of the Valium? I need them for my anxiety. And he says, oh, that's just a short term fix. You'll need to work on yourself. You need to do therapy. You'll need to read a book. Here's a book. He gave me the name of a book. And I'm like, a book isn't going to help me. And, and I remember walking out of the doctor's office because people in addiction, many of them, I can only speak for myself, but I have seen this a lot, were masters of self-deception, of rationalizing, of justifying. And to me, my GP made me become a heroin addict. 
I says, well, if he's not giving me the tablets, I have to use heroin every single day for my anxiety. And that's what I did. I, I used, I began after, I, on the back of that, I started using heroin every day, but I was, I was physically addicted at that stage. It was, it was creeping in. It was, it was coming close. And that's what, so for 15 years from 20 to 35, I, I was a chronic heroin user throughout all that time. Functional to an extent up until me mid thirties, I was quite functional, but um, it's debatable how functional, but that was really the life I led. How much did working class culture, and especially being a man, how much did that deter you from dealing with your anxiety, the way we would do it now through meditation, through almost happy like, um, and I'm using this in inverted commas, how much did working class culture force you to use substances opposed to using what we use in the modern day, for example, therapy, meditation, journaling, that kind of stuff? Um, do you think your addiction was catalyzed by what was around you? 100%. Um, people often ask me, what advice would I give to young kids or what advice would I give to my younger self? And one of the things is, is feel your feelings and tell someone about it. Now, that's all well and good. But for a kid working in a, in a, or living in, a, in, a, in an area of a, a lower class area as such. So I, I'm doing a lot of work in a mentorship programs for at risk kids over here in Dublin, kids that are from disadvantaged areas. And when we were talking about that, like it's we need to be vulnerable. We need to share our feelings. But when you live in a working class area where there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of theft, there's a lot of craziness going on. If you're vulnerable, you'll be chopped down pretty quick. So you need that shield of armor to live in that crazy world. And that shield of armor means not sharing your feelings, not being vulnerable. There is no psychological safety. There is no physical safety sometimes, never mind psychological safety. So Big time, like there's no way would I have speaking about me feelings. I, I wouldn't even admit how I felt to myself because that kind of man thing, as you, as you alluded to there, like I don't, and I didn't have the language for it back then. The language was different. I didn't even know what anxiety was when the doctor said you have generalized anxiety. Didn't know what he was talking about. But um, when we didn't have the language, but I wasn't going to admit weakness and I was looking for the physiological reason i was thinking it was a stroke was a mini heart attack that's what i thought the panic attack was because if it was psychological it was like weak and i couldn't admit that to myself and it was um yeah it didn't 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 work out well (laughs) and ultimately you didn't have that aha moment within yourself to take corrective action it was something external that happened to you that made you essentially take control of your life what caused you to take control of your life, uh, first of all? And was this the red fire extinguisher moment? This was the red fire extinguisher moment, and it, it's really interesting. Like there was there was a priest in there, there a priest that I, in a in a treatment center that I I talked to one time, and he was he was an amazing man. He had a lot of experience in addiction, and he called it. He said it's not an addiction center; it's an awareness center. It's all about awareness. And that really resonated with me because I think the opposite of addiction, I know Johan Harry talks about the opposite of addiction being connection, and I agree with that. But I also think it's awareness. It's it's a lack of awareness, aware of your emotions. You're just acting on autopilot and you're just jumping into that. So unlike some people that I've noticed in addiction, in active addiction, they have an awareness of what's going on. I was sort of just lost in my own mind. I was a black belt in self-deception. Like I really was. And I was weaving these lies and these stories and I was just lost in my own head. And I needed to be shaken to the core. And um, it was uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I was a functional addict. So I had a job for a lot of me addiction. I had people around me, family support me throughout my addiction. But I got so bad. I, 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 I caused problems for so many people. And I was just an, an absolute mess that I lost everything. I lost me mind. I lost me all the relationships in my life I lost my job and it got to the stage where I was 50 grand in debt the drugs weren't working anymore so they were causing anxiety they weren't even like I, I take copious amounts of heroin and it, it just it made me go asleep but it wasn't it wasn't taking the pain of anxiety away anymore and I was mixing drugs and it was just the drugs my body was just was just like not working in terms of how the drugs worked and I remember thinking, right, I'm going to have to do something differently. Like, I, I, and my body was even giving up. I felt like I was dying on the inside. Like, I really did. And I says, right, I'm going to try to get clean. But I wasn't getting clean to have a good life as a non, as someone that doesn't use drugs. I was saying, right, I'm going to get clean and I'm going to do it better. 
more sophisticated drug use because I can't survive without drugs. I can't cope with anxiety without drugs. I, I didn't think it was even possible to, for me to live in the world without drugs as some sort of crutch for anxiety. So I tried to get into a detox facility and I was told that um I needed to get off the benzos first. I was taking a lot of benzos, probably put 10, 20, 30 a day at me, at me best or worst, whatever way you want to look at that. And um, I says, they need to come out of my system first. So I was told that I'd have to wait eight weeks to do a benzo detox. And I was like, I'm going to be dead in eight weeks. I, I just knew I hadn't got eight weeks. I couldn't wait eight weeks. Something was just screaming at me from the inside. Do this now. So I would not advise anyone to do this. This is not advice because I nearly died. But I decided to do a benzo detox at home on my own. And two days into that detox was the most not only the most painful night in my life, it was also the most important. And I woke up on my sitting room floor and blood everywhere. And what happened was I had a grand mal convulsive seizure, which is when every every neuron in your brain fires at the same time. I convulsed on the ground and I'd actually bitten through my tongue. I nearly chopped my tongue in half through biting it. Blood, blood, that's where the blood was coming from. And I was rushed to hospital and uh, family were there supporting me as they always did. Phenomenal support. I really do have, ha, ha, I did have and have, had and have phenomenal support. Rushed to the hospital and I have very little memories of that incident in the hospital, but I vividly remember waking up in a hospital trolley later that night and my my mouth was throbbing. I felt like a balloon of nails just in my mouth with my tongue. The smell of disinfectant and the taste of metal in my mouth from the iron and the blood. I, 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 them experiences and the, the room, the orange walls in the room. Like it's like I, I, I'm there every time I think of it. And you mentioned about the red fire extinguisher, and I, I remember just being abs. I was absolutely broken, David. Like emotionally, mentally, and physically broken. I. I couldn't, uh, I just wanted it. I mentioned earlier, like you try to get out of your head when you take drugs, but you're trying to get out of your body as well. A lot of my, a lot of my pain and anxiety was in my body, my chest, my head. And I just wanted to escape myself, to run away from myself, but I had no strength. I had no way of doing that. I was just absolutely broken mentally, physically, and emotionally. And I remember just pulling myself up onto the, the, the hospital, the bed, the trolley of the bed. And I was leaning on me, sort of my elbows on my knees, looking at this red fire extinguisher on the wall. It became like a tunnel. I was just staring at this red fire extinguisher. And I couldn't label it. I was trying to label this fire extinguisher on the wall. And I was saying, well, what is that? And I was trying to name it and label it. And I couldn't, I couldn't come up with the words for the object. And I remember looking around the room, looking at other objects in the room. And I couldn't label anything. And a realization just came to me, oh my God, you're brain damaged. You're done. Game over. You're fucked. Nothing you can do now. You're done. You're brain damaged. And I was waiting. I always feared death. I was always that agitation, that anxiety, that fear. And I was waiting just to be overwhelmed. I was sort of just froze, waiting to be overwhelmed by that panic and that fear that chased me my entire life. But I remember just sort of this, this moment where I was just like, I am done. I give up. You win, can't fight this anymore. I'm putting up the white flag. I surrender. I'm done. And I believe personally that that was the moment of no nothing to do with myself. It was I was forced, beaten into submission by the pain of that night and the, and the, the 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 momentum of the previous months and years of addiction, breaking me body down, breaking me mind down. And that was just me waving the white flag. And that was the start, that moment, I believe, was the start of the rest of my life. It was like a dissolving of the ego, like it was smashed into pieces, like, you know. I can't imagine how that must feel after 18 years of escaping reality. And sometimes that reality being that the harsh truth that you cannot cope with your anxiety to then having to surrender. I don't know if you can label that as a lucky break almost because there'll be many people who may be listening to this podcast who suffer from addiction or know someone that suffers from addiction who might not have that pivoting point or that pivoting point maybe in the future how can you beat that pivoting point to the race how can you take control if that pivot hasn't happened yet yeah, it's it's a, it's a really important question because I wish I had that in a bottle and I could just give it out on spills to people in addiction, you know, I, 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 that, that, that would be the goal. And 
for me, to be honest, David, right? So, so, so bringing bringing that forward, um, I, 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 that was the shift. I went to a detox. I got off benzos after a few more seizures, a few more hospital visits. Got to a detox facility. Got off heroin, but there was something was just coming alive inside of me. I, it was like an energy coming back into my body. And I remember there was a whisper in my mind that it was the detox was a little farm, the the opiate detox, and it was like you might have a life again. I was like, what the hell? And as I got all cleansed, all the drugs out of my system, like getting the biological problem sorted first, getting the drugs out of my system from the detox, there was a fundamental shift in me that started with the fire extinguisher, but there was something shifting massively inside of me. And I remember my first day clean, it was the 8th of October, 2013. I woke up that morning on the farm and I just felt profoundly alive. I can't describe it. Like the world was just glowing. I'll never forget that experience. And um, it, it, it left me, I, I got I got clean from the detox, I went to treatment and I was left with these questions like, why did I suffer so much mentally and emotionally? Why, why don't, why do I feel so bloody amazing right now? What's the shift that happened? What the hell's going on? And how can I share it with other people? And I became obsessed with this. This is where my new obsession kicked in. I wanted to learn about psychology. I wanted to learn about personal growth, Eastern philosophy, spirituality, awareness, all of these things. And that brought me on a journey of becoming more aware. And it's back to that idea, addiction, the opposite of addiction is awareness. It's coming alive, you know what I mean? Becoming alive. Now, before I go into that, and I really, I think this is really, really important. I became addicted again. I would say for the first two years, let's call it addiction. And I went back to college and I wanted to do great in college. I really wanted to achieve and do really, really well. And my new addiction served that purpose. But I got back into the rat race. I started getting a little bit overstressed. I was trying to do too much. And I had a little mini relapse in 2015. So I don't talk about this much. It's in the book, but I don't, it doesn't come up too, too regularly. And I remember walking through the university in Minute in, 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 uh, in Kildare in Ireland. And there's these big giant psychiatrists. And when I first got clean, I was walking around on a bloody cloud. Like the world was just so amazing and everything was just alive, especially things in nature. And I remember being blown away by these giant psychiatrists. They were huge and they just really, they were awe, they were awe-inspiring. They were just, I don't know, it was like I was at one with nature sometimes. It was just this phenomenal experience because I was so, so present really. And I completely lost that. I remember walking through the university in 2015, two years later, and I looked at the trees and there was a deadness about them from my perspective. And I says, geez, I don't see them like I used to. And all of a sudden it all came crashing down to me that I started to let, I, I, I was let go with that gift I was given in 2013. I was focusing on external things and doing well in tests. I wasn't focusing on my emotional and mental health, on my meditation, on my spirituality, on my connection and awareness with other people. And that was a groundbreaking moment for me. And it was from that moment that I began, I nearly, I was nearly off to Tibet studying, uh, meditating in the monastery for the rest of my life. That was my reaction to that, going to Nepal, going to chase and the striving for that, for that peace of mind again. But that would have been more addictive thinking. So I chatted to a few people, a couple of people that I would consider mentors in, I suppose, in awareness and stuff like that. And they said, stay in academia, but make your emotional and mental health your number one uh, priority. And I did that. And I began developing a program which has gone on to, I create the company on the back of that program, but it's all about creating awareness, creating values and creating good habits in your life to stay on top of everything. And that really is the secret sauce. I would say awareness is the secret sauce of just getting in touch with yourself. What is the stories you're telling yourself? What is triggering you? What are the limiting beliefs that are holding you back? And the biggest, why I started this with, the biggest finding I found in my research was that the reason why I felt so crap was that I had this compulsive thinker that told me I was a piece of crap, I wasn't man enough, can't cope with anxiety, you'll never amount to anything. And what I've learned is in my studies is, is that language is a vehicle for emotion. There's a great quote by a guy called Hafiz, the words we speak become the house we live in. So if I was telling myself I can't cope with a piece of crap, I felt that way. So by changing your narrative and changing your thinking and changing the beliefs about yourself, you change the outcomes of your life. Now, it's obviously a lot more complex than that. And there's other strategies, but that was the biggest find. And I believe that's the secret sauce, changing the lens and the narrative of your life. And once you change that, 
the outcomes then shift i have done that in my own personal life by reading memoirs of authors and i know you're a huge um proponent of victor franco's man's search for meaning i have right. a very similar book that i lean on called the forgotten highlander which is about Ooh, you know I, i'll send you a link to it it pulled me through lockdowns um where it's a very similar story where a scottish veteran during world war ii was captured as a prisoner of war and suffered um extreme um torture on the what's it called the Oh, the death death railway um in burma um he was captured on a prisoner of, prisoner of warship that was blown up survived on a raft in the sea for days then he was taken to nagasaki which was then invaded and blown up and he just lived the most unfortunate life similarly i just interviewed um a gentleman called nick garris who said i seen i know it was that i listened to his podcast on joe rogan phenomenal phenomenal i'm dying to listen to your one yeah oh it, it is and this is all his credit um, brilliant, brilliant guest. And when I feel like I have those negative um, emotions and I have that poor inner monologue, I lean on Victor Franco's Man's Search for Meaning, The Forgotten Highlander, or Nick's story to make, to give me almost a sense of gratitude. I'm grateful that I live in a house. I'm grateful that I have liberty. I'm grateful I have knowledge and love at my fingertips via this laptop. And just being aware of the opportunities that I have that others don't propels the way I speak to myself. It's that perspective shift almost. Yeah, that that's huge. And I think that's really important as well. Like mindfulness is brilliant. Meditation is brilliant. But there's so many elements and so many tactics to increase your awareness. Conversations like this increase your awareness. Chatting to friends, reading memoirs, reading books. It's really, really important. All of these tools, going for a walk in nature, exercise to reduce your stress levels that increase your awareness as well. There's so many things that you can actually do. But there's something that I heard a couple of years ago that I think is absolutely critical is that knowledge is not where the game is played. It's played in our actions. So it's reading the books and taking the, the learnings and putting them into your own life. Because I think true learning only happens in the actions. And I think that's what separates the people that want to change versus the people that do change is the actual actions. I, I often speak to someone and they say, oh, I know about that. I know about gratitude. But do you practice it? No. So you obviously practice gratitude. You're reading the books. You're practicing the gratitude. You're implementing the tools. And that's where the true awareness comes, because I think awareness has many layers. People think, oh, I'm aware of my emotions, yet you're aware of them. They're still pulling you from left and right, and you're, you're getting angry, and you're, you're, they're pulling you all over the place. But true awareness is, and Viktor Frankl talks about the space between stimulus and response. So the stimulus is the trigger. This, the, the response might be you getting angry, but between the trigger and the anger, the potential anger, there's a space and that's where true awareness lies. That's where true change lies for me. It's the same reason why we wake up in the morning to the sound of roadworks and we're raging. But yet, if the birds are tweeting, we wake up delightful. Like, it's that space that deciphers whether one sounds great and one sounds awful. But for you and I, they're just sounds. If you practice meditation and mindfulness, one is just as beautiful as the other. Oh, that, that that brings me back, Dave. I, I remember, I remember it was um I was when I first got clean. Um, it was probably the early years. I was still living in my brother's house, the the house where I, I had the addiction, and it's near the airport. And I remember being meditating, and and the planes were annoying me coming overhead. Now every five minutes to be another plane, another plane. It's like they're ruining my meditation. Like you know, <laughs> stop the airport. Brian is meditating, um, and I remember I was listening to some book. And it's like you said, I don't know what book it was, but it says focus. It was somebody that was uh, meditating, and in uh, the uh, I think the air conditioning was bothering them, so they start mindfully focusing on that. And I remember I switched and I says, right, when the airplanes come, I'm going to focus, mindfully focus on the airplane noise. And I remember over time, it was a couple of weeks and an airplane was coming. I says, oh, lovely. Here's an airplane. And I just caught myself. Oh, my God, I've switched. I'm enjoying the airplanes. Nothing's changed except my inner world, my, my perception and my reaction to that, you know. I love the point that you brought up earlier about it's not having the knowledge, it's implementing the knowledge. Do you think that relapse that you had when you were staring at the tree in, in nature made you realize that you had such a almost fire hose of knowledge, wealth of knowledge, but did you realize that you weren't implementing any of it? Because I guess coming from the background that you have, 
and getting put into an environment in, in terms of academia, you probably felt like an imposter. So you probably had such a huge appetite to know as much as possible. So you, Brian Penny, the heroin addict, couldn't get caught out. But by doing that, you didn't implement as much. You just learned everything. It was learned knowledge, not implemented knowledge. It was remembered knowledge, not actual embodied knowledge, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And and whatever happened, whatever with the shift I was given, whatever the shift I was gifted, I don't know what with dumb luck I sometimes call it. Whatever happened, that sort of gave me, that sort of raised me baseline of awareness. But you've got to work on yourself. And I was beginning to slip. I wasn't meditating as much. I wasn't uh, being connected as much. I was. I was basically swapping uh, the, the 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 college life, now the college work. It was all about studying and learning, and I was just trying to pack in too much. And by packing in more, the 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 spiritual practice or the awareness practices that I'd like to talk about, and um, they were sliding. And that's what was happening. It wasn't that I stopped doing it, but it was sliding. And once I start sliding on the 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 the, the tools and behaviors, the habits in my life that gave me that awareness. It, it, it began it started to drift away so it was it was the lack it was the lack of action basically yeah i had a very similar moment to that i think i spoke about it um in our private chats that i lost my mom in 2020 and that was yeah. that moment for me similar to you uh and your kind of second life your bonus time you used academia as your second bout of gateway drug when you were a teen it was hash that led on to heroin the second yeah. time around it seemed like academia continuous improvement was your gateway drug fortunate for me i found myself in circles that only the latter applied to me. When I was young, I was really ambitious. Coming from a working class background, someone told me, David, you could be an accountant, they make a lot of money. The heart of all my problems was money. So I set off on a mission to, even at a young age, to gain as much money as possible, become an accountant that wasn't tied to my values, by the way. It was tied to the problem that I wanted to solve, which was my financial hardship that was predicated on helping my mum. And then when I lost my mum, having that pivot that pivot point where my north star was taken away from me i had to reframe my values and become more spiritual and the way i did that was through solitude it was right at the cusp of lockdown so i spent so much time in my own head discovering who i was and leaning on the principle that you brought to life which was awareness i discovered that i didn't want to be an accountant anymore things such as social mobility advocating in that space and starting this podcast was what i discovered from that awareness and i'm really really thankful that i didn't have to go through maybe substance abuse to discover that I lean into academia at a young age, but that isn't healthy either. One, that is just as demeaning and as destroying as, as substance abuse can be. All, the only benefit to that is that you might not wreck your physical health by, by doing so, but you can still wreck your emotional, spiritual and, and mental health through the same path. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you've t you've touched on something that is absolutely critical. Like our values are our guidance system or should be our guidance system for life. So it's incredible the way you were able to do that, Dave, at such a young age to actually realize that, especially after the death of your mum, that, like that must that, that must be been really, really difficult. And to go into yourself and, and realize that there's something else is what lights you up. And I think the reason why, like for me, I often think of the of 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 life, of the way to live in life. I think uh, awareness is the foundations. Think of it like a house. So the awareness is the foundations that sort of keep the house balanced and in order. And earthquakes will come, stuff will come along. Life will throw you core balls. That's just inevitable. That's part of the life. So your foundations need to be strong to stop the house from coming down. But then after that, the walls of the house, that's our values. That's what holds the holds the rest, holds all the stuff in the house. That's what guides us, our actions and our decisions. And then everything else sort of is what's in the house, is the habits and the tactics and the life hacks. But our values are critical because they shine a light on our authentic selves, who we truly are. And you asked at the outset, who is Brian today? And I'll give you a couple of my values. So one of my number one values is energy. I protect me energy with me life, my mental and my health, physically and mentally, and my relationships. They're three of my core values. I always throw in boldness there as well, because I like to be bold and take risks. It's giving me all these opportunities in my life. It really is. But that's who I am. I, I, I like to have good energy. I like to be bold. I, I, I place a lot of importance on my relationships and my mental and emotional health. That's probably who I am, a better description of that. 
but they shine a light on our purpose as well, on what we should be doing, on what lights that fire in our bellies, what makes us come alive. And I just think you've nailed it with that. Like our values, what is important to us is absolutely critical. And and so many people don't know what their values are. One thing that I loved reading about you, Brian, is the concept of values-based decision-making versus feelings-based based decision making can you bring that to life because i think that was golden as soon as i read that i had to take notes it was fantastic because i realized i subconsciously could remember times i chose the latter over the first and just hearing you and reading that principle that you brought to life thereafter i have tried to lean on the the first the the, the initial the the values-based decision making i think it was golden brian i really really loved it yeah, it's it's so important. I, I I tried to frame everything that way for me for myself, David, as well. It's like if you think of the example, so let's say boldness, let's say you value boldness, you value putting yourself out into the world. So you make a values-based decision and you reach out. But let's say you're having a bit of a day, a stressful day, it's just not one of those good days, and you start to fear everyone fears rejection. We don't like getting a rejected, so we say, Oh no, I won't reach out, I might get rejected. Well, that's feelings. Your feelings are driving the decision, and you're not living towards your values. Let's say reliability and getting stuff done is what you value. You are someone that gets stuff done. But you wake up in the morning and your feelings are saying, hit the snooze button, take a sick day, take a day off. And that's the, that's the limbic brain. That's the monkey mind trying to take the easy road. Your feelings will always pull you. And I'm not talking about gut in, your gut or your instinct or your intuition. This is more negative feelings like... Uh, avoiding uncomfortable uh, pain and avoiding emotional pain. Like, let's say you're feeling a little bit stressed. The easy decision is have a drink, take a drug, feelings-based decision. Whereas a values-based decision is go for a run, go for the gym, talk to a friend, be vulnerable with somebody and speak. That's taking a values-based decisions. So for every easy way out, like instant gratification, there's a more delayed gratification gratification road and it's usually the values-based decision and there's a quote by a guy called uh, Jersey Gregorick and I think it encapsulates this idea hard choices easy life easy choices hard life and it's like the hard choices are the values-based decisions (laughs) the easy choices are the feelings-based decisions have a drunk avoid those difficult conversations hit the snooze button Go have some fun. <laughs> oh, uh, epic, Brian. It reminds me of a mental model called, I think it's called the Third Order Effect. And it really ties oh, well say, into this. Second Order Effect, is it? Oh, perhaps. I would say it's, it's, it's Nth Order Effect. It can be Second, Third, Fourth Order Effect. Yeah, I love mental models. I'm obsessed with mental models, actually. So, so I think that's the one where, for example, for example, it's the dichotomy of choosing taking the escalator or taking the stairs. The First Order Effect is that you save calories. It's less exhaustive. It's instant gratification by taking the escalator. But the second order effect of that is that over time, by taking the stairs every single time, you're burning calories, you're looking after your physical health. And the third order effect is actually the mental dichotomy where you seek the challenge when a dichotomy of hard and easy presents itself. And it's crazy that over time, by choosing one or the other, your brain can adapt and make overarching holistic choices based on little minute micro decisions such as taking the escalator taking the stairs and i think you really brought that to life in your last example there oh man it's so interesting you say that because i i I, so exercise is is sort of my first domino it sort of kind of knocks down all the other dominoes of the day set your intentions for the day as well it's really important and I'd go to the gym five, six times a week. Some days it'd be an active active rest day or something like that. But it's really about setting me intentions for the day. And I drive under an underground car park and there's a, a stairs up from the underground car park. And there's two escalators, one coming up, <laughs> one coming down and a stairs in the middle. And every day I take the stairs and it's the day that I'm intended to take the escalator that I'm like, Oh God, I have to keep an eye on today. (laughs) And I never even noticed that. That comes to what you have said there. It's the third order effect. It's setting the tone for the hard. The harder is harder, but it's the easier route at the end of the day. I love it. I love it, mate. I read your Medium article about detailing how your brain scans between sobriety and five years thereafter. um, Your brain scans were completely polarized in terms of how they looked in terms of its matter and its structure. If you told me that prior to knowing your story, I would have called it as a, I would have called that a miracle as bullshit. But yeah. reading your story, it's completely factual. Can you bring to life how perhaps heroin or addiction can really change your brain 
and bring to life how malleable our brains really are. Yeah, hundred percent. So it was really interesting. So the day, two days before my first day clean that we talked about earlier on, so it would have been the le- the eleventh of October. A woman called uh, Dr. Johanna Ivers came into the detox looking for subjects to be part of a brain study. They were checking the impact of methadone on, and feeling effect on the brain. So I was part of that brain study, got an fMRI scan, and then I done my PhD in the Institute of Neuroscience five years later. So I was able to have access to an fMRI scanner in there. So we done another scan and, and scanned the comparisons of the brain. Now, it's quite difficult to analyze direct comparisons of structural brains and they were at different resolution, but we could visually see like huge changes in, in areas of my brain, particularly the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. But it was in a, from a robust scientific perspective, it was difficult to analyze. So what we done was we done a very robust procedure, analytical method called a uh, brain pad which is basically assessing using a machine learning technique to assess the, the the density of the gray matter of the brain. And what we found was that we huge structural density changes in my brain five years later. And what brain pad scores do, they predict the age of the brain based on the actual brain versus chronological age. And in the five years that of that I had from 2014 to 2018, I'd reduced the age of my brain by six years. So when I was 39, I had the chronological age of 39, but the, the brain predicted age of a 29 year old man, and I'd reduced that over time. And then I stopped doing heroin, I start exercising, I start learning. But for me, it all came by changing my relationship with anxiety. I have a wonderful relationship with anxiety today, stress, anxiety, bring it on. It's 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 changing that perspective allowed everything else to come into my life. And that was really where the, the big brain changes came from. Brilliant, Brian. You spoke about the amygdala and its um, responsibility. What are the other parts of the brain responsible for? So there's different areas. So like the brain, for anyone out there, like so you might have heard of neuroplasticity. So the brain is plastic, basically. Whatever you rest your mind upon, the brain will take that shape, be it anger, guilt, worrying. I was in an anxiety. My brain was a finely tuned anxiety machine because that's all I'd done for years, always worrying, always anxious. So that the amygdala is around the fear center of the brain. But research shows, especially mindfulness research shows, there's an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex that's related to concentration and attention. So people that meditate have more increased structural uh, density of that area of the brain. They're physically more attuned to be attentive and concentrated. There's an area of the brain called the insula that's uh, associated with awareness, the awareness that we have. There's another, it's like a multiple networks of the brain called the default mode network. And this is really, really interesting. So when the default mode network is active, the brain is in wandering mode. You're thinking into the future, you're delving back into the past, regrets, missed opportunities, thinking about your holiday, what could have been, the way our, our minds just wander. And what it shows, what research shows is that people that meditate or spend a lot of time in the present moment, they change the default of their brains and knock this mode off. So they're basically more present and not jumping into the future and into the past, which is where our problems live. Like there's no real problems in the future. Yeah, you might not, you might be struggling to financially and you might be struggling with things in the moment. But most of our problems are really future oriented, you know, like in the moment, unless you're being attacked by a lion, like there's nothing right now that that's actually has you in danger. And this triggers a lot of people because some people say, well, I've no money to pay the rent and I'm an alcoholic and I, I experience trauma. But you can deal with that in the moment. Like if I said to anybody, can you can you handle that for another 10 seconds? Of course you can. You know, they're living that all at the time. But it's the extended projection of how that's going to play out. Like. From what I think back in my story, I can't cope. I, I'll never be able to cope. I'm never going to be man enough. It's the extension of that as well. So we can change our brains to be more present rather than that past and future oriented. I love that. And I haven't remembered an example in my own life until recently uh, where I did a skydive. I did a skydive last week in Portugal. Um, it was a bucket list item. And I was think I was having this kind of role play in my head. I was thinking, well, I'm anxious, I'm nervous. But what am I nervous about? I was asking the questions. Am I nervous about the free fall? No, I'm not. I'm nervous in case the free fall goes wrong. It's an it's an event that may or may not happen in the future. Yeah. And then when I actually jumped out the plane and I was free falling, there was not an emotion in my body. I was present. I was not nervous about anything. 
it just shows that that was an example for me that when I face worry or anxiety, I don't want to say anxiety, but anxiousness, it's not about the present. I'm, I'm never anxious about what's going on right now. It's just an event that may or may not happen in the future. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example because it's like people say, yeah, I could die, but it's an expectation. It's a possible thing that may happen because we can't predict the future. Nobody can predict the future. And that's where most of our worries lie with a projected future that may or may not happen. You're here, so you survived the parachute jump. <laughs> no need to worry. <laughs> I know I've not got you for too much longer, mate, but your article about the um, aging effects of your brain and how you reverse that came with 12 habits. I want to unpick just a couple before we go. Yeah, 100%. One of my favorites was observing without engaging. What does that mean? That is absolutely critical. And that comes back to what we were talking about at the very start, David. Like, it's this ability to observe. Like, I think I mentioned at the start, who was Brian? He was. He looked like an anxious addict. He taught like an anxious addict. And he felt like an anxious addict, right? So when I look in the mirror today, I don't look, think, or feel like an anxious addict. So what was I back then? I had thoughts and feelings, but, like, they are just thoughts and feelings. They are not who we are. So whatever thoughts and feelings I have today... That doesn't determine who I am. So what we can do is like that you can take a step back and observe what you're thinking. Right. I might kill myself if I fall, if I jump out of this airplane. You can observe that thought. You feel anxious in your chest. You can take a step back and you can observe that feeling. You can um feel whatever. And it's it's like we can take a step back and feel it. And there's a great metaphor that really encapsulates this. It's like clouds floating through a sky. Sometimes they're dark and angry clouds. Sometimes they're bright and fluffy, joyful, happy. But we are not the clouds. That's our thoughts and our feelings. We're like the blue sky that observes them coming and going. So when you are challenged, try to take a step back and observe the thoughts, observe the feelings, because how you feel today versus yesterday is different. How you think today versus five years ago is different. It's not who we are. It's something that comes and goes. So taking that witness or observer perspective creates this sense of detachment, especially when you do it without engaging in it. It creates this sense of detachment. And then when difficult thoughts and feelings arise, you are no longer overwhelmed by them. So I mentioned earlier, I've, I have a great relationship with anxiety today. I still experience anxiety, but I watch it come and I watch it go. That's 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 the essence of it in a nutshell. I love that. And it eliminates an example that I can think of where your thoughts, good or bad, are like apples on a tree. The Some apples are great, some apples are rotten. And without a ladder, these apples fall by themselves. But if you meditate, that is your ladder. You can go up the ladder and pick, mindfully pick what thoughts you want what apples you want what are good thoughts what are good apples and you can pick them but without that ladder the apples are just going to fall without you having any control over it oh i love that david i love that and it's like that focused attention it's like uh, laser focus on what you want i want that apple i want that apple I am in control of my life. The world isn't pulling me strings and letting these apples fall to the ground. That's a beautiful metaphor. I'll be taking that home with me. Thanks, my friend. <laughs> One last um, habit. Seeking questions without answers. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting because we tend we tend to like we have problems in life. And with problems, we tend to look for answers to these problems. But paradoxically, and, and there's a lot of a lot of been wrote about this as well, like we need to seek better questions rather than looking for the answers all the time. So like a, co- a couple of the questions that I love, it's uh, like, what are you constantly avoiding? Because we tend to avoid what we must need to do. Whether it's we're avoiding exercise, we're avoiding we're avoiding exercise because we need to be fit. We're avoiding meditation because it's scary, but that's why we need to do it because we're being overwhelmed by our emotions. So what are you constantly avoiding shines a light on things more than asking yourself. Like if you just look to the answers, why do I feel, why, do, why don't I feel good? I want to feel better. I want to feel better. How can I feel better? Well, ask yourself really good questions. And I think, I think that's a, that's a really good one. That's one of my favorites. I think my favorite question is if I am saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? And we've only 24 hours in the day. So it's really important to prioritize what's important. So if you're saying yes to a coffee shop meeting with a pal that you kind of like, 
you're probably saying no to going over and spending an hour with your mom or an hour with your partner. You know what I mean? So it's really important to choose who you spend your time with because we have a limited amount of time. And it, it might, some people struggle with this because they think it's selfish. Like you can't be going around saying no to people all the time. But like you've got to serve your own energy. You've got to, the more, you, the more, the more, the more full you are, the more you can give. So sometimes you've got to say no to one thing to be more selfish to fill your own cup so you can give more in the long run. And we can't be everything to everybody. So we've got to choose who and where we can put the best stuff out into the world. And I think it's really important. If I'm saying yes to this, what am I saying no to? Really important question. Brian, if the listeners didn't start with a notepad and pen, I'm sure they finished with it. Um, your whole journey is transformative. It's no quick fix. But if there's one thing that the listeners can take away immediately from this podcast and implement into their own lives, what would it be? Oh, God. Spend time. It seems so simple and so cliche. Spend more time with people that lift you up. Like, I think that's that's a butcher of, a, of an Oprah Winfrey crow, but spend, it's about connection. The, the more I've spent, the longer I've spent in recovery, the more I'm realizing that life is about connection and creating memories with other human beings. You're not going to be on your deathbed wishing you'd done another day's work or wishing you tried to earn more money. You're going to want more time to spend with your loved ones, creating those memories. So, spend it's a very practical bit of advice it's not around personal growth spend more time in the present moment with your loved ones so be present while you're there so be there and be there fully with the people that you love i've tried to be as present throughout this podcast it's been an absolute privilege mate i really really mean that where can the people find you online uh, so you can find me on uh, the best place to go is brianpenny.com so it's brianpenny b-r-i-a-n-p-e-n-n-i-e all access to me courses me book all free videos lots of different blogs that i wrote everything is in there but can i say as well Dave, this was an absolute privilege i don't want it to end unfortunately it has to end but i don't want it to end but it's great picked up some great tips as well that apple metaphor man that that's blowing my mind it really is a few other great snippets but an absolute privilege really really loved every minute of it man thanks for having me uh it's a real privilege see you soon mate see you soon all the best boy.